Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 49 and go ahead and sit down. It's a long one. Just wait till next week, folks. Just wait till next week. Um, in the way that it's all laid out, we're, we're going to do 49 today. We're going to do 50 and 51 next week because it's one message to Babylon in two chapters. Um, we're going to do it in one week because we need to then get in chapter 52, which is kind of the summary recount of the whole message from Jeremiah. It's the recount of the fall of Jerusalem, but it really serves as a summary message just in time to be done before Palm Sunday. So we will finish Jeremiah before Easter, Lord willing. Jeremiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Batra will become a horror, a taunt, a waste and a curse, and all her cities shall be a perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle, for behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will, be, and will hiss because of all of its disasters. 
As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. The sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become feeble. She turned to flee, and panic seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as of a woman in labor. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck down, thus says the Lord, Rise up, advance against Kedar. Destroy the people of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall be taken. Their curtains and all their goods. Their camels shall be led away from them. And men shall cry to them, terror on every side. Flee, wander far away. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, declares the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has made a plan against you and formed a purpose against you. Rise up. Advance against a nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord, that has no gates or bars that dwells alone. Their camels shall become plunder, their herds of livestock a spoil. I will scatter to every wind those who cut the corners of their hair, and I will bring their calamity from every side of them, declares the Lord. Hazor shall become a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. No man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fear. And destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you um, help us as we come now to your word to not simply understand what's being read from these pages, 
but to hear by your Spirit's power your word today. Would you speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see, there are five entities that are addressed in, these, uh, in, this, in this chapter in this series of the messages to the nations, beginning with Egypt, working our way up to Babylon. These are the last five before we get to Babylon. And there are nations that we see, Ammon, Edom, and Elam. Damascus is a city, not a nation, but represents Syria, the country in which it exists still to this day. And then these nomadic tribes of Kedar and Hazor. In a way, it's, it's wearying to read through, to study, to come back week after week to hear these messages because it's just pile upon pile of judgment and judgment and judgment. It's, it's hard. It's sobering. And so it's important to remind ourselves why this is here. First, we've said this again and again, Lord, the Lord God is, is Lord over all the nations, right? He rules over all the nations. There isn't a, a nation that's exempt, which is part of the reason why the, 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 the spread is the way that it is in this chapter. We'll see that. It's also that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one, none who are exempt. And he will by no means clear the guilty. In the shorter catechism, question 56 says, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? And the answer is, the reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. So for us to recognize God as judge, God as judge over all peoples, is both terrifying and liberating. As sinners, we are terrified that we must give an account for our actions. To think that we are accountable to a holy God is a terrifying thing. Thankfully, for all who trust in Christ, our sins are not held against us because he's paid the price for them. So for the believer, God as judge is a warning not to toy with sin and temptation, not to treat it as trivial or to ever cease mortifying sin in our lives. For the unbeliever, God as judge is a call to faith, to fall upon the mercy of our loving God who has made a way through his son that we might be forgiven and cleansed from all of our sin. But understanding God as judge is also liberating. Liberating because we see the continual perversion of God's righteous standards in our culture and the world around us. We see it as we are sinned against. We see it as we suffer injustice and others do as well. And we see it just in the way that we long for the final eradication from sin forever. We long to be free from it. And so it's freeing that it is not our responsibility to be judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is his job to judge. We don't have to right all the wrongs in this world. We are free from that. Now, we can stand and we should stand for righteousness and justice in the spheres of our influence, but we have to recognize that we are not the world's savior, nor is anyone else besides Jesus. He is the one who will right all wrongs. He is the one who will straighten what is crooked because he is the redeemer. And he will often use his people, but he is the king, not us. It is his kingdom, and we must trust him as king. We were the ones in need of redemption and restoration. Don't forget that. 
We were the ones who were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it was for our sake that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we may be, may be made righteous because of Christ. So for any who reject him then, they must face God's judgment for their sin. So these are all things we've talked about throughout our study of Jeremiah. Good to remember as we come to these final messages in chapter 49. And so beginning in verse 1, we come to Ammon. Ammon lay to the east of Israel, just north of Moab, so still in that section where modern-day Jordan is. If you remember anything from Old Testament reading, you've seen Ammon before. There were a lot of warrings over this land. Um, It was subdued most effectively during David's reign. I kind of find that uh, interesting that so many of these countries were subdued so effectively during David's reign. You you really get the sense that David, why he was considered such a great king uh, in terms of, of, of what he accomplished. But in the time of Jeremiah, the Ammonites had regained this land. So after David's reign, when he had subdued it, the Ammonites had come back in. They had used the opportunity when the Assyrians had come and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And so they had come in. And so uh, Babylon rose to power after the Assyrians. They initially side with Nebuchadnezzar only to turn against him after the fall of Jerusalem. And you'll remember from the story uh, of Gedaliah, the governor, of the remnant who was left there, that it was the Ammonites who planned the attempted, well, his not attempted, it was successful, his assassination uh, in the end. And so finally Nebuchadnezzar comes in and invades in 582 B.C. But the, the beginning of this message is, is one of rhetorical questions. We see the Lord use these in, in a number of the messages here today. And here the questions are uh, about the land itself. And, and is, you know, he, does Israel have any sons? Does Israel not have an heir? Why are, what are you doing in, in Gad and Reuben's land? That's who had been given the land. As I mentioned, this happened when the Assyrians came in, that the Ammonites moved into this land. But the offense is not just in the annexation of the land. But it is ultimately in the worship of the false god, Moloch. Now, I read from the ESV, and and, and many of you use that as well. You'll see the name Milcom. Uh, It's just another name for Moloch. It's the same god. And we recognize, I think for me at least, Moloch is more recognizable as the the pagan god who people worshipped through child sacrifice. This was the national god of the Ammonites. If you want to know anything at all about the Ammonites, think about that, that Moloch was their national god. Now, the Moabites, just like the Edomites, were distant cousins of Israel. But the people at this point in history, and this is hard for us to understand, in our time and culture, we put so much of an emphasis on ethnicity as our identity. But it, at this time in, in this culture, they did it. They were more, uh, they found their identities more in their, in their national gods. John McKay, a commentator, says, In the ancient Near East, the unity of a nation tended to be thought of not in terms of common ancestry, but in terms of worshiping the same national god. And when you hear that, it makes a lot of sense because all these people were distant cousins. You know, they should have been getting along if that's really where they found their identity. But this is how, this is how they viewed it. They viewed it as they were the people of Moloch. And for all that we know about Moloch, that tells us a lot about the people of Ammon. And so a battle cry is declared against this nation. And the result is that the land will be made a desolate mound. They're told that Israel will again possess the land. Although it doesn't say that Israel's going to do the attacking. That's, that's not what's implied there. We know that it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar. 
But the attack is pictured as coming from all around them. Their warriors are tossed headlong in defeat, verse 5 says. There will be no one to gather the fugitives because they have displaced Israel, because they have worshipped Moloch, and because they have trusted in their own resources and wealth. God is judging them. They will be driven out of their land. And yet, in verse 6, is the word of hope. Afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. In verse 7, the message to the Edomites begins. This is the longest of each uh, of these five. The longest message is to the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Both words mean red, and so they too are distant cousins of the Jews. Seems that the rivalry that you remember between Jacob and Esau started in the womb. The two brothers, the twins, fought and continued on. And it seems that that continued on even after they were dead in their, uh, in their offspring. The prophet Amos says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. So Edom, we know, had a whole list of indictments in the Old Testament. It's one of those countries that is spoken against uh, again and again. Uh, we see it in, um, uh, the, the, if you're reading through the Bible plan on Friday, well, if you're on the Bible plan, it was Friday. If you're running a few days late, it may have been after that. But Numbers chapter 20 The Edomites refused to let Israel pass as they left the wilderness and came into the promised land. This was one of the things that they were called out for again and again. Numbers 20, verses 14 to 21. Uh, They attacked uh, Israel a number of times. Uh, David, even though he conquered them, they came back, we know, during Solomon's reign uh, to seek their revenge. The psalmist called out the Edomites for rejoicing in the fall of Jerusalem. In Psalm 137.7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. In other words, burn it down, burn it down, burn it down to the ground was their taunt. And so the psalmist is calling out the Edomites for this. Remember the Edomites when we get a little further into our Bible reading plan into that little-known book of Obadiah. It's only one chapter, shortest prophet, but the entire message of Obadiah is against the nation of Edom. In fact, Jeremiah and Obadiah share a lot of the same language if you compare chapter 49 with the book of Obadiah. And so looking at verse 7, we see the Lord begins again with a rhetorical question about the wisdom of Timan. Timon, or any of the 16 ways that I like to pronounce it. I don't know why I change the pronunciation each time. It's just a, a unique gift of mine. But whatever you uh, pronounce, however you pronounce this city, um, this was one of, uh, of, of Edom's central cities, and it was well known for its wisdom. Uh, Obadiah talked about this. Uh, this was its... Uh, uh, reputation or whatever. Uh, you remember when we read through the book of Job, one of his friends, we, I mean, they weren't really friends, but one of Job's comforters, uh, Eliphaz, this is where he's from. He was from Teman of Edom. And so the Lord is bringing up this question of where's this, all this wisdom that you're known for? You know, that's your reputation. You're known as a wise people. Where is all of it gone? Now, part of the wisdom likely came from the fact that in Edom, there was a highway that ran the entire length of the country called the King's Highway. And if you look on a map, you can get a sense of why this would be a significant trade route in the known world at that time. 
And I think there was probably a, a reason for why so much wisdom resided there. They had access to people from so many different cultures and places that they were constantly learning new things. In addition to the wisdom that they possessed, they also felt safe by their geography. On either side of them lay these barren deserts. You had the Negev on the west and the Arabian Desert on the east. You had the Red Sea to the south. And so they were kind of isolated in in, in a sense from just a constant barrage of attacking armies. But the Lord promises to uncover them, to strip Esau bare so that he is not able to conceal himself. Verse 10. They thought they were spared from judgment because all the other nations were getting judged. Edom took pride in the fact that it had not been. But the Lord says, you will not go unpunished. You must drink. Basra is the capital. It is one of her cities. It will become a waste. The Lord swears this as an oath by himself. There's no one greater for him to swear by. Verse 13, that an outside army is coming to accomplish this task, to bring low these proud Edomites. He again mentions that they, they hid in the clefts of the rock. They, there were these cliffs that rose up uh, uh, over the highway, and it was strategic to hide up in the cliffs because you had the angle on anyone who passed by. It kind of kept you safe. And so the Lord said he will promise to bring them down from these nests in verse 16. He then compares their destruction to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that it would be like that. It was going to come in a different fashion but that it would be as sure as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah stood as an example in Jewish history of God's judgment on sin. And so here he's making that point that as sure as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, so will you, Edom, be destroyed. In verse 19, we see the image of a lion coming up out of the jungle. Uh, This is worth uh, noting here that the Lord is describing what is is happening as what he is going to do. He is sending the lion. He will cause Edom to scatter. And then he asks these questions to demonstrate that no one compares to him. Who is like me? Verse 19. Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? And his point in all of this is that Edom and really all nations should heed is that he is ruler over all. He is the king. No one can oppose him. When great leaders and world powers arise, remember who is sovereign over even them. It's so basic and yet it is so hard for us when we turn on the news feed and we hear of what's happening, of what new thing it is that we're supposed to be afraid of. And God is saying here to us today, who can stand before me? He is the sovereign king over all of these matters. Men and women boast in their fame, their intellect, their money, whatever it is they deem great about themselves. But they are each one like grass of the field. And like grass, they will wither in death and meet their maker to find out who is the truly great one. So as we pointed out in the beginning, these messages are twofold. They give us comfort from anxiety as evil people rise to power and oppress others. They will be judged. God will take care of it. But these messages are also a call to us to repent. That all might see and fear and know through faith in Christ the forgiveness of sins. That they may not have to bear the just judgment against themselves. Hear this today. The wrath that came against these nations was a just wrath. And the wrath that is coming against Edom is pictured in horrible detail. At the end of verse 20, even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away 
Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. They will be appalled. Other nations will be appalled. Edom's destruction will be so profound it will reach the ends of the known world. Four, one is coming like an eagle, and we know what the eagle has come to represent. And it's going to come against Basra and all the cities there, and her warriors will melt. In 552 B.C., Babylon came as an eagle under the reign of its final king after Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed Edom not only from this land but from history. We don't hear of Edom anymore after this. In verse 23, Syria, the city of Damascus, its capital, is given a message of judgment through the coming destruction of an invading army. Cities are used to represent entire countries like Timan and Basra for Edom. Here it is, Damascus. Syria is the nation. Uh, Syria was previously known as Aram. Uh, so we, and Syria sounds a lot like Siri. So even though I have Do Not Disturb on, Siri is now very curious uh, what I am talking about. I didn't even think that that would ever be a problem when I said the nation of that country all the Apple users are laughing. Um, so this country in which Damascus is the capital uh, was formerly known as Aram. So the Aramean cities uh, that were, were conquered by the Assyrian army, uh, when, when Babylon rose to power after this event, they decide to just join in, you know, go against or, or go, go with the flow, so to speak. And they uh, join in the attack on Judah in 597 B.C. That may have been part of the reason for the judgment. There's not, a, there's not a specific reason. This is the shortest of all the messages in this chapter. But ultimately what is seen here is that it is an act of the Lord of judgment against people who have opposed him. He says, I will kindle the fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Yet the Lord calls Damascus the city of my joy in verse 25. And we read past that. I don't know if, you, if, if your eyes caught that. But doesn't that sound like something he would reserve only for Jerusalem? And yet here he calls Damascus the city of my joy. And so all throughout this we see that God is a God of the nations. God is a God who is redeeming people out of every nation. His love and his heart is not limited to a geography. And so here he declares the joy that he finds in Damascus, even though he's bringing judgment against it. In verse 28, we read of the lesser-known Kedar and Hazor, which are these nomadic tribes that uh, were out in the Arabian desert to the east of Israel and Judah. Kedar is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It's not unfamiliar to us. They were descendants of Ishmael. But this is the only place that Hazor is referred to. But the tribes that these names represent are not limited to a city or a region. They moved all around. They're nomadic uh, Bedouins, as, as we would call them today. But even these nomadic people are going to face God's judgment. So while we've seen the messages begin with Egypt and we know that it ends with Babylon, what we're seeing is that Jeremiah is not only covering ge- geographically the, the, the known world at this time, but he's also showing that from the least to the greatest... All nations will be judged by God. That's, that's, that's the point that he's making, is that no one is exempt. So here we have people that uh, some may have considered less significant or you know, kind of unseen, unheard from. People of Judah would not have known much about them other than that they were out there. They might have been seen almost as annoying neighbors. But here this nomadic people are not exempt from the judgment of God. And this message 
Nebuchadnezzar is the only one in which he is identified by name, is going to be the agent of judgment. A battle cry is given, rise up to the Babylonian army against these tribes. Everything they have is going to be taken away from them. Tents, flocks, camels, while their men cry out terror on every side. She is pictured as a nation at ease. Why? Because no one, no one really saw the benefit. I mean, they're out there in the desert. They're doing their own thing. Unless they came in and annoyed you, they were kind of a nation at ease. They, were, they had no gates, no bars, right? There was no fortification. They didn't need it. They felt like they, they were safe. And so the promise is the land in which she roams will become barren and no one will dwell there. So as the people of Judah would then read the book of Jeremiah in exile while they're licking their wounds of their own judgment there in Babylon, they're going to be reminded again that God is God over all nations. Even the people who might seem like no one would care much for, let alone remember, God would judge all of their neighbors, great and small. And God would judge even these nomadic people scattered in the desert. And then the final one, Jeremiah now takes us to what is kind of the ends of the earth to the Judeans. He takes us to the country, the nation of Elam. Elam is where present day Iran is with the capital city of Susa. It would have seemed like the ends of the earth. It would have have seemed far away in terms of distance, but also the fact that you had this huge Arabian desert there in between. We're given a date for this oracle, not for the others, but for this one we're told it's at the beginning of King Zedekiah's reign in Judah. And the Lord begins the declaration this way, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. And as you might guess, the Elamites were known for their skill with bow and arrow. That's what they were known for. And so the Lord says, I'm going to show my power over what is the mainstay of your power, the center of your power, what you think is so great about your power. I'm going to destroy this. And he said he would scatter them to every nation. Elam's refugees would have to run all over the world, so to speak, to get away to safety. And note again that it is the Lord doing this. He is the one terrifying Elam. He is the one who will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, declares the Lord, I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. So the conquering armies that are superintended by the Lord to accomplish his purposes, to carry out his will. He even declares his sovereignty over the throne in Elam in verse 38, which brings to mind the verse from Daniel 2 that says the Lord raises up or removes kings and raises up kings. It is the Lord's doing. And then in the end is this word of hope, a promise of restoration. I will restore Elam. For some of the nations, we can look back in history. We can see that there was a lasting restoration. For others, the restoration was very short-lived before they were wiped away. There was some countries, some groups that got no message of restoration, and we kind of scratch our heads and wonder why. And yet we, we realize that restoration has to mean something more than simple existence, than national prosperity. It has to recognize that there's something more to the promise in the same way that we recognize the promise of land to Israel was pointing to a greater land, something that is far more significant than real estate. To be truly meaningful, restoration has to point beyond the here and now. And so we turn ahead, and I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native native language? Verse 9. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed. And then Peter stands up and he gives this excellent explanation of all that Christ had done. He explains the gospel that they can hear in their own language and how even their hearing in their own language was a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by Joel. And the Spirit convicts the people. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Those who are near and those who are far off from every nation, And people group and tribe on earth, the Lord who judges over all nations also saves out of all nations. This is the ultimate picture of restoration and hope that is pointed to in these messages to the nations. We see even at Pentecost people from Egypt. There's been a message to the Egyptians. Elam, there was that one. The Mesopotamia, the Medes, the Arabians, these, these, uh, uh, the, the um, Bedouins who were there out in the desert. And now at this point in history, Europe is included. Asia. The point is God calls and saves people from among all the nations of the earth because he is king over all the earth. And this should make our hearts glad. It should make our hearts glad when we hear of the church's growth in a nation like Iran, which is modern-day Elam. Primarily, the growth of the church there is all underground, meaning that when the believers meet, they have to meet secretly. This is because the country is almost 98% Islamic. And we know from, if you watch the news or listen to the news or read the news, it is not a very tolerant regime. Yet among the 90 million people that live there, the evangelical growth rate, according to the Joshua Project, is 19.6%. This means that the church is growing the fastest today in the country of Iran. For all the earthly fortunes that it could have been restored to this people, none could compare to the hope of the gospel. Earthly prosperity is like dust in the wind. None of us take it with us when we go. But the hope of the gospel is that we can be saved from our sins, 
that Christ has died, having taken upon himself the just judgment that we deserved. So our hope of restoration and the hope of restoration for Iranians and Nigerians, for the people of Pakistan and Malaysia, Bulgaria, Peru, all around the world, the true hope of restoration for all people is that we might be justified before the God of the universe, before the King of all nations. Justified. Freed from the judgment that is due us and clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. That is true hope. That is true restoration. Found only in the person of Jesus. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Let's pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see that when we read these heavy words... And they are heavy. That you are just and righteous in your judgments. But may we also see that you are mighty to save. Make us glad that you have freed us from enslavement to sin. That you have brought us from death to life. But make us not stingy of that grace. Lord, make us lavish in the grace that has been shown to us that we might be willing and free to give up what we might consider rightly ours, but it's not because it's all a gift, a gift that you have given to us. So make us free in giving what you have given to us. Lord, may we not treat sin tritely as insignificant. May we not treat sin and temptation as something to be toyed with, but may we recognize that you as judge are a consuming fire. And may we not come to sin with an attitude other than wanting to kill it. Lord, make us also careful and mindful of the needs around us, those who have not seen and understood the gospel, that we would not waste our days, waste the moments, waste the resources, the relationships, the opportunities that we have to speak of the hope within us. Help us to see with eyes uh, that you give us to, to, to see these opportunities and the courage to take them. And Lord, make our lives a fragrant aroma that others might see our lives lived as unto you and glorify you in heaven. You are God of all nations. Would you take away all anxiety and fear that we muster up when we think of all the great powers of the world and the things that are going to happen? May we see a great hope that is in you, that the promise of restoration carried out and fulfilled in Jesus Christ is our sure hope and our sure future, and nothing will thwart your plans. So give us that hope today as we go now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's